pause for the next three study of one of the most complex subjects in the Bible. What really happened on the cross? And we're going to use seven metaphors that Scripture provides to paint a mental picture for what really happened on the cross. The suffering servant, conflict and victory, sacrifice, ransom and redemption, reconciliation, justification, and adoption. Two metaphors we'll work on this morning. It is the suffering servant and the conflict in victory. C. Leonard Allen, who is the dean of biblical studies at Lipscomb University, said this about the suffering servant. The cross reveals the heart of God most clearly, thereby putting all human concepts of God to the test. Let me read that to you again. The cross reveals the heart of God most clearly, thereby putting all our human conceptions of God to the test. No metaphor is more challenging to humanity than the idea of a majestic God, of a sovereign God that doesn't need anything from us, an omnipotent God who can do anything anytime he gets ready to be a suffering servant. Paul tells the Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Men and women in Paul's day could not get over it. You see, the Jews, they wanted a sign from God, someone that was going to prove to them that they were going to restore the throne of David. To the Greeks, suffering didn't fit into their philosophy. Suffering to them didn't have a To the Romans, well, they found servants and suffering to be weak. How could the Savior of the universe be either? Isaiah records God speaking. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, speaking about to raise up a tribe of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you the light of nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God is painting a picture that the servant, this servant, Jesus Christ, is so great that he's not just going to restore Israel. He's not just going to save Israel, but he's going to save the entire world. He's going to redeem everyone, all nations. And that's a good thing because that's you and I today. I want you for just a minute I want you to listen to how Isaiah paints a metaphoric picture of the suffering servant. How he's going to take our sin and bear it and bear the penalty on our behalf. Just let this soak in as I read them. Isaiah 53 and 5. But he was pierced 
through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressor, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now I want you to listen to Mark 8 and 31, which Mark is, is 700, uh, year, 700 years away from Isaiah. He says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark even has Christ describing himself as the suffering servant. And yet how is it written, the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Christ himself talked about how he came to serve and not to be served, how he was going to suffer. This great metaphor of suffering servant, we can see Christ suffering for us on our behalf, taking on our transgressions, bearing our sins. It's scandalous, isn't it? That we sin and he suffers for us. But that's the love of God, isn't it? The next is conflict and victory. This metaphor illustrates the very basic of good versus evil. God loving humanity and going into battle with Satan to win us back. His suffering to gain our victory. The concept in of victory is almost instantly declared. As soon as sin moves into the world, the victory is already declared. I love how the easy-to-read translation uh, translates Genesis uh, 3 and 15. I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. God is speaking to Satan. He's saying, I'm going to make you and the woman, you and Eve, enemies. Your children and her children will be enemies. He's saying, your demons, your evil spirits, your princes of darkness, you're going to be enemies of my creation, my children. You will bite her child's foot. You will bruise Christ's heel. You'll be annoying to us. But he, he will crush your head. The victory, the battle has been announced, and the winner is already won. This is a key metaphor in the Synoptic Gospels. In one of the first narratives that we have, the Gospel writers paint a picture for us of Jesus going into the wilderness and going toe-to-toe with Christ and being tempted and who wins? Of course, Christ. 
This metaphor is the first one. This story is the first one of the kingdom of God breaking into the world that has been dominated by Satan. Jesus replied, Verily I tell, tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And it is that sin, it is that giving in to evil that enslaves humanity to death. Christ tells us in John 10.10 that Christ and Satan are diametrically opposed, right? Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy your life. And Jesus came so that you might have life and have life to the full. The gospel depicts Jesus going toe-to-toe with demons and winning victories time and time again. Jesus wants us to understand, humanity to understand, that no evil can stand up against the kingdom of God. In Luke, Christ's disciples returned from their first mission trip And they tell Christ, saying, the seven returned with joy. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Luke, Christ declares to the disciples that Satan's power is being displaced. He is on the way out. He has seen him fall. As the kingdom of God spreads, Satan's power and Satan's playing field gets smaller and smaller until it will be completely conquered at the end of time. In Luke, Christ decides, excuse me, I'm going the wrong way. Paul speaks often of conflict and with Satan, with the rulers and the powers of spiritual evil. Paul wants us to recognize the great conflict is not man to man. The conflict is not about man to man. We get confused sometimes, don't we? And we think our enemy is men. The enemy is Satan. The enemy, the the war being battled, It is God against Satan to be victorious for humanity. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christ conquered that for us on the cross. Christ continues, talking in Ephesians 19 and 22, that the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And to God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. This is what happened at the resurrection. Paul wants us to know that Satan was totally defeated. 
that Christ has been given victorious authority over every heavenly rim, over all rule, over all authority, every type of power and dominion. And if that's not enough, Paul puts this phrase in, and every name that is invoked. He's saying, and every Greek god that you think you might call upon, he's over. Every Roman emperor that you might call upon, he's over. Every name that you can invoke, he has authority over. Everything is placed under his rule and his reign on the cross. So why tell you about the suffering servant? Why tell you about conflict and victory? Because this is the gospel story. What happened at the cross is center to our entire faith. Sometimes I'm afraid that we forget doctrine is not our gospel. Methods and tradition are not our gospel. Plans and systems are not our gospel. Our gospel is the gospel is Christ died for our sins and through his suffering and victory and by the grace of God, we are saved. Amen? You see, everything about our faith, about our doctrine, about our salvation, Don hinges upon the cross. Paul tells the Corinthian church, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You see, if Christ was not victorious on the cross, then our faith is useless, worthless, because the suffering servant was victorious on the cross. This morning, I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know if you need to give your life to Christ in baptism or if you need to confess a sin or, or you just need the church to pray for you. If you do, these front chairs are open for you. There'll be at least one loving, kind elder at the back door to pray with you if you need to have prayers in private. We're here for you this morning for any spiritual need that you have. Won't you stand and sing? When I survey.